you would take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. You, you remember where we're at in our text. Last week, Jesus has made this triumphant entry into Jerusalem. As he's coming in, of course, he has prophesied. Uh, he's coming in on a donkey, and he'll be riding in, of course, the cries of Hosanna. And they're, they're, they're uh, cheering for Jesus. Save us, King. Jesus is what they're really cheering. They thought he was coming to deliver them from Roman rule. And it wouldn't be just a few days later they would actually say, crucify him. It wouldn't be long. Same crowd. When Jesus did not meet their demands, they turned on Jesus. Just like we know when we don't meet the demands of some, they'll turn on you as well. There's a group of people that are here and watching this, and they're the Greeks. The Bible says in verse number 20, if you'd turn over there with me, in verse 20 of John chapter 12, and there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. Well, what feast is this? This is the feast of the Passover. Jesus, as I said last week, the Passover would be, each family would bring a lamb, and they would put that lamb in the sheepfold outside of the walls of Jerusalem. They would run these sheep through the sheep gate, there they would be inspected and in the fold and ran through the sheep gate. And of course, they would be slaughtered. The blood would be applied and that would be for the sacrifice. They, they would then cook the meat and the family would partake of that meat. And they called that celebration the Feast of the Passover as they celebrated the Passover in the book of Exodus. Jesus did not come to celebrate the Passover. Jesus came to be the Passover. And He was inspected. And the Bible says that Pilate said, I find no fault in Him. Amen. Jesus came to be that sacrifice. Little did they know that a week later, Jesus would be crucified on a cross. And the Greeks, they came to Philip in verse 21. Why did they come to Philip? Well, Philip had a Greek name. Matter of fact, the king at that time, the king of Greece, was Philip, the son of Alexander the Great. And so, I'm sure the Greek, actually, the Greeks, they felt comfortable with coming to a man with a Greek name. Philip being a disciple of Jesus Christ, he, he then calls a meeting. He's from Bethsaida of Galilee and desired him saying, here's what the Greeks said, listen to this, Sir, we would see Jesus. I love that phrase. I've preached in pulpits before where on the pulpit behind the podium they would have a little plaque. Our says, preach the word. And I like that. But theirs would say, sir, we would see Jesus. Here's what the Greeks are basically saying. We want to have a conversation with Jesus. We, we would like to have a chat with Jesus. That's what they're saying. And so, verse 22, So Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, who's a, another disciple, and again, Andrew and Philip kind of have this little conversation in verse 22, and they go both and decide, okay, let's go to Jesus, and let's tell Jesus that this group of Greeks want to uh, have a conversation with them. They want to talk to Jesus about what they have seen. Now, you understand, Greek, in their culture, everything revolved around entertainment. The Greek society, boy, they really knew how to throw on a, a party. They knew how to have coliseums filled. All the Greek culture was surrounded by entertainment. Matter of fact, that sounds like much like America, right? We, we center a lot of uh, entertainment. Matter of fact, there'll be two stadiums today filled with 
uh, several, uh, maybe uh, 80,000 one and 80-some thousand another. We call it playoffs. And I'm not criticizing football, but you understand that without those sports and without entertainment in America, we wouldn't know how to behave. We wouldn't know what to do. That's exactly the Greek culture of Jesus' day. It was centered around hippodromes. It was centered around coliseums and gladiators. It was, it was uh, uh, centered around chariot races and horse races and gambling and parties and drunkenness. And so when the Greeks came to Jesus, they, they sought Jesus out and they said, we want to have a meeting with Him. We want to know what all of this is all about. Look at what Jesus responds to in verse 23. And Jesus answered them saying, the hour is come. That the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat, that's a seed of wheat, just a little grain, fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. And if any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. And if any man serve me, him will my Father, honor. Let's pray once again. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to preach the Word as you have instructed us to do. Thank you for the good singing. Thank you for the choir. Thank you for the corporate choir we just heard uh, together. All these voices, hundreds of voices, blended in harmony and, and sung praises to the King of Kings. And Lord, now here we rest on Scripture that we must hear from God. We must hear from you today. This is not man. This is not some, uh, Lord, some uh, uh, mechanical, methodical thing that we do each week. This is something that we have to hear from, and we have to hear from God. I pray you'll help us, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Two of God's unchangeable goals is found in John chapter 12. One of the goals being... The goal for His Son was a death on the cross. Jesus had to die on a cross. He could not be stoned to death. He could not be drugged through the street. He could not be beaten to death. Jesus had to die on a Roman cross. The second goal for God was for His children to die to self. That's exactly what Jesus is saying in verses 23 through verse number 26 we find that this is actually taking place and Jesus responds to these Greeks and He says something very interesting. The hour has come. The hour has come. Now previously in chapter 2 verse 4, Jesus said, my hour is not yet come. In chapter 7 and verse 30, we read that His hour had not yet come. In chapter 8 and verse 20, we still read that His hour had not yet come. They're trying to seize Him and kill Him and, and crucify Him early. But Jesus says, the hour has not yet come. And finally, in John chapter 12, He says, the hour is come. The hour for what? The hour for, for what? What, Jesus? What hour are you referring to? Well, Christ continues in verse number 23. He says this, and look with me. He says, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Well, well wouldn't we think the hour is come when the Son of Man should be crucified? That's not what Jesus said. Jesus is actually looking past the cross. 
And he's looking past the, the, the cross and, and he's, he's saying, because look at verse 27, we just see how he responds. He says this, now is my hour troubled, my soul troubled, and what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour. This is the words of Christ. But for this cause came I into this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. So, so this voice comes. It sounds as like thunder. It's the voice of God because look at verse 29. The people therefore that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. And others said it's an angel that spake to him. But Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. This is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Jesus is saying, You put me on this Roman cross, you think that it's going to... To, to kill me and crucify me, but let me tell you what you're going to do. When you hang me on that Ro Roman cross and I die for the sins of the world, it's going to preach to thousands and millions and the message of the gospel and the death of the cross will continue to preach. You don't even realize what you're doing. The Son of Man will be glorified when Jesus Christ is lifted up on the cross. All men will see him. He said, my goal is to come to earth and to die on a cross, and I'm going to accomplish that. The hour is now. Now turning the world's wisdom on its ear, Jesus in three brief sentences in verse number 23, in verse, or verse 24, verse 25, and verse 26 lays out to us what he is actually talking about when he's speaking to the Greeks. Three brief sentences and three principles forever removes the fog of God's divine goal for His children and what it means to follow Him. See, often we say, follow Christ. And I have decided to follow Jesus. We will baptize here in just a little bit. And that's, that's a wonderful picture of the death, the burial, the resurrection. You're identifying with Christ through salvation, but also through His baptism. Through the death, the burial, and the resurrection. You're identifying with Jesus. And we have decided to follow Jesus. When you ask people, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Many people would say, oh, it means to, to be a fisherman of men. A fisher of men. And that's good, and I'm for that. And I think that's wonderful. But that's not it. That's not all it is. That is some of it, but that's not all it is. When we decide to, and pay attention to this, when we decide to follow Jesus, we will follow Jesus to a cross. Not His cross, your cross. There has to be a death. If I were to ask you this morning, tell me about your salvation. Tell me about the day that you got saved. Tell me about the experience that you had. Because all of our experiences would be different. The old timers used to call it an experience of grace. And that's what it is. Tell us about the day you got saved. Many of us, a smile would come to our face and we would say, Oh, let me tell you about the day that I got saved. The day that I put my faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And many of us would, would say, but, but if someone were to ask us, 
Tell me about the day you died. Died to self. Died to your desires. Died to your will. Died to your goals. Died to your dreams. Died to your ambitions. Died to whatever thing consumes your life. What would you say? The first thing that I want to preach to you this morning is this. Here I am, Lord. Bury me. He said in verse 24, If a corn of wheat or a seed of wheat... Fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. I like that. It doesn't just say it brings some fruit. It doesn't say it brings forth fruit. It says it brings forth much fruit. It produces something. Producing fruit. The first thing that I want to bring to your attention this morning is if you want a flourishing life... You will have to be willing to die. I know I've quenched the kind of the mood. A while ago we were shouting and hooping and, hey, the choir sounded good. All my sins have been forgiven. I heard some of you. I like it. Ain't nobody shouting right now because we're preaching on death. And we're not preaching on his death because we like to shout there. We're preaching on our death. Death to self. You know who my biggest enemy is? It's not you. It's not the preacher across town. It's not some government official. It's not some person that's an atheist or a God denier or an antichrist. No, that's not it. The biggest enemy that I have, you're looking at him. It's me. And your biggest enemy is you. And we're commanded to die. He says that if that... Corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it biteth alone. And if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. The truth is, God's children are like seeds, as Jesus is telling these Greeks, left alone, we're small and insignificant. But His life within us, when buried, we die to ourselves and our lives flourish with fruit. Fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of evangelism, the fruit of discipleship, the fruit of salt and light, it produces effects. So why is it difficult to volunteer for seed duty? Why can't we get more people to volunteer to die in Him? Why why is that? I believe there's two primary reasons that we have a problem being a seed. The first reason I believe we have a problem being a seed is you have to give God the right to determine what kind of seed you are and what fruit you'll produce. That's not up to you. He determines what fruit you'll produce. He determines what seed you are. You say, Lord, here I I am, Lord. Uh, Bury me. Can you imagine hearing a tomato seed or a tomato plant wanting to be a corn stalk? The corn stalk is much taller, it's much more noticeable, and that little tomato plant over here is a little less noticeable, it doesn't go as high. So the tomato seed gets the idea of being a corn stalk, but that's not what his maker made him to be. And sometimes we want what we think is best, but it's not what God thinks is best. If I had an orange up here this morning and I were to squeeze that orange and the juice run down my hand and on my forearm into a cup, 
I'd say, what kind of juice is this? You'd say, orange juice. If I were to grab a, a, a peach this morning and I were to uh, squeeze that peach and that juice run down my hand and on my forearm into a bowl, you'd say that's peach juice. If I had an apple and I squeezed an apple and the juice run down my arm into the cup, you'd say that's apple juice because that's what it is and that's what it produces. But when you're squeezed... What do you produce? What fruit comes out of you? See, to a Christian, joy ought to come. Peace ought to come. Contentment ought to come. Love ought to come. When we're squeezed, the, the juices of the fruit of the Spirit ought to flow. But hold on, a lot of times when a Christian is squeezed, bitterness comes. Anger comes. Wrath. Why? Because it's their life, and I'm going to do what I want with my life. No, 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 may I get you straight? It's not your life. May I just rock your world for just a moment? Those are not your children. May I even get right up in your personal space? That's not your car out here. Oh, I'm making the payment. I had a preacher friend who, he was in a meeting one time and his wife and his daughter was at home and, and, and about 12.30 at night they heard a commotion out in the driveway and heard some glass shatter. And he, his wife looked out the window and she saw someone had knocked the, the window out of their car and hot-wired it and drove off. She called her husband 12.30 at night, he gets, he's in a hotel room, he answers the phone thinking something really bad had happened. She said, honey, you're not going to believe this. Something horrible has happened. What's happened? Someone stole the car out of our driveway. They knocked the win window out and they hot-wired our, our, our only year-old car that we had that we're paying for and they took off with it. And he said, was anybody hurt? No, nobody was hurt. Have you called the police? Yes, I've called the police. Are they there yet? Not yet, but they're on their way. She said, aren't you going to be upset? Someone has stole our car. And he said, I got on my knees. And he said, God, someone just stole your car. <laughs> someone just stole your car. It's not my car. He had to remind his wife that the car that God had literally made available for them, that given them the finances to even have it, that's not his car. And by the way, a few days later, they found his car, and they restored it back, and they got it back. Hey, you know what? If we have the mentality that what we have, God has given us, it will change us. All that we have, God has Given. Why is it difficult to be in the seed duty? Well, we, we determine, God determines what seed you are and what kind of fruit you'll produce. But secondly, it's difficult to volunteer to become one of God's seeds because you are then given God the right to plant you wherever He wants to plant you. And nobody likes giving God everything. Listen to me. Nobody likes giving God everything. A preacher will say, I'm called to preach and I'm going to preach. But then you say, yeah, there's a church in Podunk, South Dakota with a population of 400 people in town and they need a pastor. God didn't call me there. 
I get calls, and I'm not exaggerating, I get calls all the time. Do you know somewhere that someone would, would, would like to come and preach and pastor these people? And listen, sadly, I cannot. There's been times where I've tried to refer someone, and here's exactly the, the message that I got from those individuals is, hey, I've been called to preach down south. It's too cold up north. You think I'm exaggerating. Listen, the list of people that have their little God call me here if there's palm trees and sand. But I'll not go there. You know what you said? I can't be a seed. God, you don't have all control. Lord, you, you don't have it all. So, so this is the reason why many people do not volunteer for seed duty. You want to bury me where? Simpsonville, South Carolina, why? That was the question that I had for God nearly seven years ago when God uprooted my seed and planted me about three hours south in Simpsonville. Why? I had no idea at the time, but we just said, Lord, here's a blank piece of paper. I'll sign the bottom of it. It's your life and we'll go. Didn't want to. Was it something that we were looking for? We had a wonderful situation there with a thriving church, working with my father, kids in a Christian school. Everything seemed to be lining up for something wonderful. And all of a sudden, God takes the seed and plants it somewhere else. Start over and put a smile on your face. January 12th, 1722, Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest brilliant minds in American history. The president of Princeton University. The preach the great awakening. He said this in his diary. I have been before God. I have given myself all that I am and have to God so that I am not in any respect my own. Neither have I any right to this body or any of its members. No right to this tongue, these hands, these feet. No right to these senses, these eyes, these ears, this smell, this taste. It all belongs to Him. I have given myself clear away and have not retained anything as my own. The words of Jonathan Edwards. What was Jonathan Edwards saying? Lord, I'm volunteering to be a seed in your hand. And even though I might want to be somewhere else, doing something else, becoming something else, here I am, Lord. Bury me. Have you died? Oh, I know I'm preaching to a bunch of living, breathing people. But have you died to your own will, to your own ambitions, to your own self? And have you said, Lord, I surrender all to you? We sing, Lord, I surrender all. But do we really think about the words and what that means? Here's the second thing about this dying to self. If you want a, if you want a life that is, that is uh, flourishing, you have to be willing to die. But if you want a fulfilled life, you have to be willing to forfeit control. Notice verse 25. 
He that loveth his own life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. Three times in that one verse, we see the word love. Now, we automatically go to that and say, well, he uses the word love quite a bit, or loveth. And so that means that we got to love the life that he gives us. Well, that, that in, in the regular English language, yes, we would assume that's what he's meaning, and hate means hate, but... But that's not what it means in the Greek language. Love here is actually talking and speaking of our mind. It speaks of our plans, our ambitions. It speaks of our self-interest. And when Jesus is saying, He who loves His own his own life, He's saying, if you love your own ambitions, your own plans, your own dreams, He says, you'll destroy your life. You say, well, pastor, am I supposed to hate my life? Is that what Jesus is saying? Hate is such a strong word, and it is. When we, when we say we hate something, I mean, if I even hear my children say the word hate, I'm just like, ooh, I don't want that, because we're not commanded to hate things. There's some hate, hatred towards sin, but we're not commanded to use that a lot. But Jesus said in His words, He that hateth his life. So, pastor... You mean to tell me that I am to hate my very own life? Understand what Jesus is saying. There's a big contrast between love and hate. What does He mean by saying that? Well, first He uses that language of exaggerated contrast. He's using the word love, but really what He's saying is He that hateth His own life, it simply means to love less. So love your life less than you love the life that I have for you. Or love me more than you love your own life. See, typically we have our priorities in the wrong place. We want what's best for us before we want what's best for God. So therefore we love our own life more than we love the life that He has for us. George Mueller lived in England. He was a great man of faith, he founded many orphanages for children who had no home. Once he was asked about the secret of his ministry, and there was a day he said this, there was a day when I died, I died to George Mueller. His opinions, his preferences, his taste, his will, I died to the world, I died to its approval or censure, died to the approval or blame of my friends, and since then I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. What was Mueller saying? He forfeited control and ultimately lived a fulfilled life. Here's what many people pray today. Lord, I'll abandon my will to yours, but first, let me see how this balances in my checkbook. Or let me see some guarantees that your plans are really the ones that will work better for me because I've got some pretty good plans for my life. We almost pray and ask God, but we put some stipulations on it. Lord, I'll do that if you'll do this. Lord, I'll go there if you do this. That was Gideon's problem, wasn't it? The interesting thing is that Jesus never adopted the popular methods of, of, of recruitment. Modern recruitment tells you that if you will sign and list and join, you will get what you want. 
Jesus is telling us that if you want to serve Him, you will not get what you want, you'll get what He wants to do with you. Many of you would not sign up for something if we didn't tell you what you're signing up for. Oh, I'll sign up. Sure, let me, give me the list of things. I'm, but that ain't how Jesus works. He said, you sign up and then let me have control. Ugh! Oh, I can't do that. I, I don't have, we like control. You say, well, I'm not a control freak. Yes, you are. We all are. Think of what he could have said. Follow me. I'll show you some amazing miracles. Follow me and you'll walk on water. Follow me and you'll see things you've never seen before. But instead of saying that, Jesus said, do you want to follow me? Yes, Lord. I want to follow you. Then are you ready to die to your ambitions? Are you ready to die and forfeit control of your own personal life? Ladies and gentlemen, let me just say this morning, we must move over out of the driver's seat of our life and let God take control. Here's the third and final thing. Look at verse number 26. If any man serve me, there he uses the word serve, let him follow me, And where I am, there shall also my servant, there's a second form of it, be, and if any man serve me three times, him will my father honor. Did you notice what a servant does here in the text? He serves his master. And as part of verse 26, he then says he follows his master, and it is a matter of what we call ownership. It is that Christ now owns us. We're facing the results of a subtle shift that now takes us to the the Christian community by force. Generations ago, Christians used to pray, Lord, use me. I remember hearing my dad pray. My dad's a pastor, nearly 40 years, the same church. Lord, use me. You'd hear preachers of the past get behind a pulpit. Use me, Lord. But now, here's our prayer. Lord, bless me. Bless me, Lord. But hold on. What happened to the using? I thought it was a blessing to be used. The reason we're not used today like we should be is because we are afraid of the brokenness that comes with the usefulness. We just want to go... Straight to the crown. Instead of to the crucifixion. We want the blessings without the burden. We want the cross. We want the crown instead of the cross. The principle of ownership is when God makes the demands and we do the obeying. It is hard to obey The Word of God. Whoever says it's easy for us to obey this book has not read this book. It is challenging to love my neighbor, to pray for my enemies, to give all I have to Christ, 
To endure hardness as a good soldier? To walk through the fire? To to go through the valley of the shadow of death? Yes, that's what the Lord says. And we must obey. At a conference years ago, uh, I was preaching a youth conference in South Carolina when I still lived in North Carolina. This is way before I moved to Bible Baptist. Preached on full surrender. A message very similar to this in this context. Did not use this, this text, but used another text of surrendering our life to Christ. Place was packed full of teenagers. I mean, people were making decisions, but the one decision that impacted me the most was made by a 13-year-old girl sitting on about the second row. I said that I would come to the altar and I would stand in front of the altar and I would pray for every teenager that would come and surrender their life. I stood right here and uh, there was teens coming and I'd make, have prayer and, and then I'd pray for this young man and I'd put my hand on a young man and say, Lord, uh, use this young man in a special way. And, and, all. And, and, you know, the girls would come and we were very helpful as far as we had a few ladies there that would pray with the girls and I, I'd pray, pray with them. And there was one young lady that brought me a a piece of paper. And it was a little bigger than this. And it was blank, a blank piece of notebook paper. Nothing wrote, wrote on it, nothing. Except at the very bottom, I noticed she signed her name. And she said, I'm giving God something. And I said, okay, what's that? And she said, my life. And I've signed the bottom because it's a blank piece of paper and he can put whatever he wants to on it impacted me to this day. A 13-year-old girl, I have no idea where she's at today, but let me tell you, if that young lady did what she said she would do, there's no telling where she's at today, what God is doing with her. Because that is exactly what the Lord wants. He wants all of you. Not with the stipulation, not with a little asterisk down at the bottom, not with a little fine print. Well, Lord, you know, if you sign this contract, I'll be sure to be obedient to this and that. But if you send me there, I won't go. No. Two of God's incentives to follow His will, and I'm done. But look at verse 26. Here's what he says about complete surrender and complete ownership. Incentive number one is the promise of special communion. Look at verse 26, the front part of that verse. It says, if any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, boy, this is great. This is a wonderful promise. Where I am, there shall also my servant be. So here's the promise, young people. Listen, and and, and adults and everybody. Listen, the promise is this. That if we, some of you liked it when I said young people, right? You're like, ooh. I like him. Listen up here, children. Wherever he, whatever the Lord calls us to do, whatever the Lord says, here is what I have, and we say, I'll follow, I'll serve, he says, I've promised to be right with you. You know what that is? That's special communion. We can rest assured. You say, Pastor, what if God sends me? What if God sends me to the north? I said the same thing. I don't want to go up there. It's too cold. Then people will drive you off the road and they'll honk their horn and they'll gush you out. The food is 
not as good. The food is not as good. Lord, the food is not as good. That's really what mine would say. He says, if I send you, I promise I'll be with you. His presence is worth more than anything else. I would much rather have the presence of God with me than for 5,000 men say, Preacher, wherever you go, we're going. Why? Because God's presence trumps man's presence. But then he says, in the latter part of verse 26, look at it. And if any man serve me, him will my Father honor. So not only is there a special communion, but there is a special commendation. I'm going to honor you for being my servant. Now church, look at me, I'm through. What honor would it be on this earth? I don't know, there's people that will never hear their name, will never see anything about these folks that have fully surrendered their life and went where God wanted them to go. We'll never see their names in light. We'll never see accolades and probably not. What was he referring to? One day when we get to heaven, the Lord will honor you for your faithfulness. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. As much as I believe there are degrees in hell, I believe also there's degrees in heaven. I believe many people's works will burn up, but there'll be some that'll be tried by fire. And guess what we'll do? When we get those rewards, those crowns, guess what? We're, we'll cast them at the feet of Jesus. What a great reward! Why would we not want to live on this earth for others? Why would we not want to live on this earth for Him? Why would we say, it's my life, I'll do what I want? Hey, a dead man has no rights. You go to the cemeteries today, read the rights to those people. They don't care. There's no rights. And to a dead or died, a, a, a death, a Christian that's had a death, he has no rights. Why? Because it all belongs to Him. Jesus. So pastor, what are you trying to get us to do? Die? That was one time a woman approached me after the service, one time preaching a message much like this. She said, yeah, that was a morbid message. What are you trying to get us to do? I said, die. (laughs) Yeah. Die to self. Because the more you die to self, the more you live for Him. You just think you've lived. But when you start dying to self, let me tell you something. When you die to self, and when you're squeezed by life, when the juices of life flow, that's when the glory of God will glow on you, and the fruit of the Spirit will just show on you. And you'll say, you know what, life is squeezing me, but I'm all right because... He is in control. I've given Him my life. Let's pray together.